Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. We're going to be, in the new year, working our way through the book of Esther and thinking about when God seems invisible. So back in 1969, uh, there was a man by the name of Chuck Colson. He was appointed as special counsel to President Nixon. He worked closely with the president and was especially helpful to influence special interest groups in behalf of the president. He was also involved in the uh, Watergate incident and was indicted and prosecuted and went to jail for his involvement in that scandal. While he was in jail, he came to know Jesus as Lord of his life and changed his entire life and became a very outspoken and well-known Christian until his death. In a recent article in Westminster Seminary's uh, magazine, Point of Contact, he was quoted in describing how the Oval Office in the White House was designed. It is designed, and the experience of going to see the president in the Oval Office is designed to overawe visitors so that by the time you actually sit down in front of the president, you're too intimidated to ask for what you really want. That's how power was wielded in the time of Chuck Colson. That's the goal, to intimidate people, to uh, show control, to manipulate people, uh, to do whatever, to make you feel powerless. Anyone here ever feel powerless in this great big world in front of all the important people that are here? You know, here we are just trying to make a small living, right? The book of... Esther in the Hebrew Bible is, has a strange uniqueness that no other book in the Bible has. It never ever uses or mentions the name of God. It is the story of a series of events that take place during the reign of a Persian king whose name was Ahasuerus. He was also known more prominently as Xerxes the Great, He reigned from 486 to 464 BC. Persia was at that time the largest and the greatest empire in the ancient world. Its territory spread from in the east over near Pakistan or India all the way through the Middle East as far in the west towards Greece. And the Persian Empire was the one who had earlier allowed the Jewish people to return to Israel and return to Jerusalem in 539 B.C. 
There's two other books of the Bible, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they take place before, earlier than, the story of Esther. It's believed that at that time, the Persians who came to power in the world wanted to curry favor with those who had been taken captive by the previous kingdoms of Babylon and Assyria. And so in order to curry favor and to win uh, support for the Persian Empire, they allowed folks like the Jewish people and others like them who had been taken captive to return to their land of origin. As long as they paid tribute to and supported the king of Persia. And Israel answered to Persia, but the happenings in Israel at this time weren't important to the whole scheme of things that were happening in the world. You need to know that when the Israelites returned to Jerusalem in the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, not all of them returned. Not all of them chose to go back. Many of them stayed. There were businesses and families and things going on in Babylon, in Syria, in the Persian city of Susa. And the Jewish people didn't all live in Israel. They were scattered all over the world. And then for the big festivals, they would all make pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover and things like that. And so they stayed that way, scattered throughout, even though after Israel was recognized as a puppet nation under the reign of Persia. Israel was the capital of the Jewish people, but not all the Jewish people lived there. They were scattered throughout the empire. That's why we have this story about Esther, who was a Jewish girl who lived far from Israel, but Israel was of very, very little importance to the king of Persia in that day. Here's what was important. King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, needed to raise an army and make a plan to go back and attack Greece again. Xerxes' father had been defeated by the Greeks earlier, and Xerxes needed to strike back with an iron fist. And it's believed that the stories or the scenes that we see here in the book of Esther took place around 483 BC because at that time Xerxes commanded a war tribunal and brought all of his generals and leaders to convene in Susa to develop a plan of attack to go back against the Greeks. That war tribunal may be this 180-day convention that's mentioned in verses 3 and 4 of our story. That's some of the background of our passage. The scene we read today gives us a window into what was happening in the throne room in the palace of Ahasuerus or Xerxes. I'm going to use those two words interchangeably. It's the same person. And what's happening in his throne room is kind of a wild story. After 180 days of deliberations, the city is filled with armies and leaders, and the king throws a seven-day feast. And the people are wined and dined in high luxury. There is an unlimited open bar. It appears that there's plenty of, it appears that there's a, a men's party, and somewhere maybe in the harem somewhere, there's a women's party in another section of the palace. And after seven days of merrymaking, the king decides that he wants his most beautiful wife, Vashti, to make a public appearance in the men's side of the party. 
he commands her handlers, known as eunuchs, to go and make her ready. And he wants everyone to see how beautiful she is. But she refuses to come and doesn't show up to the party. Now, our story doesn't comment on why she refuses, although we can imagine that she probably didn't want to be on display as a beautiful object for all of the drunken men to behold. It's kind of funny, really. Good for her. The king commands his beautiful wife to show herself off to his friends, and she says no. But it doesn't reflect well on King Ahasuerus. He's embarrassed, and he is infuriated by this. The great king of the greatest empire in the entire world can't even command his own wife in front of all his leaders and commanders. Hmm. Now the story gets even stranger. The king calls his seven closest counselors in and asks them what we should do about this. And one of them, a man by the name of Memukin, that name was really hard, right, Karen? He speaks for the group and he says, you know, this is really embarrassing. What if all the women everywhere find out that Vashti, the queen, has resisted her husband? All the women are going to resist their husbands too. And, and this is really, really bad. We have to do something to prevent this from happening. We don't want everyone to find out and do the same thing. So what do they do? They decide to issue an edict and tell everyone what Vashti did. That's funny. They don't want anybody to find out, so they tell everyone what happened. That makes sense. Good thinking, men. But there's a cruel twist. She's going to be banished from ever seeing the king again, whether that means spending her time in solitude inside the harem or something worse. We don't know. She's deposed as queen, and they're going to choose another queen. And they issue a decree. It's translated into all the languages of the kingdom. The writers go out so that everybody hears. The men are in charge here. The women are to shut up and put up, unless you want to become like Vashti. That's the solution that the king's seven wise counselors put forth. We're going to teach those women in Persia. This is the scene in the throne room of the king of Persia, the greatest empire in the world. Great power. Absolute power. Vast armies. Extravagant feasts. Extended drinking parties. Women as objects to be devoured by the eyes of men. If not worse. He ruled by terror and fear. If you did not do what was expected, even his trophy wife is punished for it. Relationships don't matter to the king unless those relationships are subservient to him. People are objects to be manipulated and used for his pleasure. This was the king to which the little province of Israel had to answer. 
They paid their taxes and they yielded their allegiance to this man. It's quite possible that some governor in the Podunk village of Israel somewhere received this decree that told the story of the precious trophy wife, Vashti, being banished by her husband to set an example for anyone else who thinks that they can say no to the king. The throne room of Hashuerus is a dangerous, threatening, intimidating place. He had absolute sway. No one was able to resist him. No one dare resist him. This is the beginning of the story. This is the setting for the book of Esther. The throne room of the king of Persia was a place where he reigned absolutely and he wasn't a good man. The men around him weren't good men. People were objects to be manipulated and controlled. The women belonged to men like objects to be seen and not heard. They were disposable if they didn't measure up. It's an ugly, ugly picture of life in the ancient world. And it's a picture that's contained in our Bibles. There have actually been several biblical scholars throughout the ages who looked at this book of the Bible, Esther, and really wondered why it was even there and even wished it wasn't there. We don't like this story. Surely God doesn't approve it can't be that God thinks these things are good. And, and the Bible records a whole vast number of really gnarly and not good stories. And the fact that these stories are in the Bible doesn't mean that God looks at all these stories with a smile on his face. Not by any means. He doesn't give Ahasuerus his stamp of approval. It could never be. But the book of Esther never mentions God. Where is God in the mix of this bleak situation? Where do God's people even figure into this scenario? What good is going to come of God's people under this kind of rule? Israel's off to the side. They're nothing. And Ahasuerus has supreme control on the world. He's going to exert himself over the will of all other people. He's in charge here, not God. But one thing is clear as we read this passage handed down to us, telling the story recorded long, long ago. God knows. God knows. It's been written. God knows that this scene existed and he knew. He knows what our world can be like today. Rick mentioned during prayer, both of us have sort of been uh, reading the Psalms together and, and I do that in uh, my meditation time with God in the morning and I, and I started going back through it again. And the Psalms are, are Hebrew poetry, they are praise songs. Most of them were written by King David of Israel, but there's plenty written by others. And you know what the Psalms are full of? Complaining. Complaining to God. To complaining to God about how bad the world is. It's painful. It's discouraging. It makes us feel powerless. It makes us feel hopeless. It makes us feel anxious. 
The world can seem absolutely really bad all around us. The powers that be are often people that have almost absolute power. And they can be, people can be characterized by unbridled and wanton desire. The powers that be can, can be less about, can care less about the little people. The powers that can be can marginalize, use, and take advantage of the weak. They can make decisions without having to ask anybody else. They can make decisions that can damage our well-being. They can treat us unfairly. They can crush our beliefs and opinions in the dust and walk away. The world can be a pretty cruel place. And God's people have often found themselves on the losing side against the powers that be. And God knows. God knows the machinations of kings and presidents and prime ministers and governors and lawmakers and judges and courts. He's not ignorant. He's not afraid. He's not watching and somehow shocked or surprised or caught off guard by the machinations of the powers that be. He knows. And he hears our cries as he did in the Psalms. How long? How long? One of the Psalms, Psalm 2, says that God laughs. Listen to the first four verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4 says this, he who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I mentioned that we laugh when Queen Vashti refuses to parade before the king and his drunken entourage. We also laugh when the king's counselors are afraid that Vashti's behavior is going to spread to to other women in the kingdom, inspire them to do the same. So they send a decree to the entire kingdom, to its farthest reaches in every language, to tell them what Vashti did and how women are supposed to obey their husbands or else. We laugh because the king and his counselors look stupid, not powerful. And you know why we laugh? Because God laughs. People are foolish. They think that they are the important runs and that they run the world. And people in power think that the world belongs to them. People in power think that they don't have to answer to anybody. And people in power think that the little people exist to serve what they want. And God looks down from the heavens on the designs of men and he chuckles to himself. Who do you think you are? Now, it's not that the things that people do to one another are funny to God. That's not it at all. God doesn't laugh at the abuse of power or injustice or mistreatment of women by their husbands. Not at all. What God laughs at is the foolish pride with which people view themselves in light of the truth of who he is. The high ideas that we have about ourselves are laughable to God. 
The Bible speaks about our lives as a vapor or like the grass or the flowers of the field. You know, a flower blooms and in a day or two it's dried up by the sun. To ourselves, we feel so self-important, so powerful, so in control. But in the grand scheme of things where God sits, we are small, weak, powerless, and insignificant. Humanity does not go unnoticed by God and injustice does not go unpunished by God because thirdly, God reigns. He reigns. If you fast forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, there's a scene. Chapter 4, verse 1 reads like this. After I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal." And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You could read further. It's amazing. As Christians, we we talk about going to heaven and we tend to think about heaven as that beautiful, happy place where we go to be with God someday. But really in the scriptures, um, the biblical, typical biblical view of heaven is that it is the throne room of Almighty God. God is over all creation and all the universe, and of which the earth is a rock in the universe and people are ants on that rock. And he is seated on his throne in the heavens, ruling over the events of the earth. That is really the theme of the book of Revelation. If you want to understand what Revelation is all about, it's, it's God's perspective on the foolishness of earth. God's in the heavens. He's dealing justice from the heavens. He will save his children from the turmoil of life on earth. He will judge the wicked, and then he will remake the earth and the sky as a place that he puts us back on, redeemed and renewed forever in a new heavens and a new earth, enjoying his presence here. God reigns, not a Hasuerus. 
God reigns, not Joseph Biden. God reigns, not Vladimir Putin or whoever. God is in his throne room while kings, presidents, prime ministers are making their power plays on earth. He sees the power plays of man. He laughs because he reigns. Sometimes we get to thinking that the pers- if the person we didn't vote for gets elected, the wheels are going to come off the world. If the powers that be promote policies that we disagree with, we're going to lose control of society. But we don't have control in the first place. We never had it. But thank heaven we have a God that does reign even now over all the things that scare and trouble us. Even though humans are terrifically wicked, violent, and destructive... God has not somehow lost control of the world. His throne is above all. The actions of humanity are under his scrutiny. They will not escape the consequences of their actions. No one is exempt from the rule of God, but in his patience, he waits. But he's neither powerless nor blind. Why does God wait What's he waiting for? In the biography of Jesus, John, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. God sent Jesus into our world and whoever believes in him will start a brand new life with God that lasts forever. God does not wish to condemn the world before he gives the people of our world an opportunity to be redeemed. People are perishing. God offers us redemption And when we believe, we escape judgment and become one of his redeemed children. Jesus came to redeem. And he redeems us by rescuing us from God's judgment. Because Jesus died for our sins, we are rescued from the judgment that is coming. And each day, while the world rages and the powers that be oppress the weak, is a day in which God is also working redemption in the world. And people like you and I, broken people and little people and weak people and sick people and sinful people are turning to Jesus and saying, I believe, save me, please. And when we do that, he does. While God waits, people are being saved by believing on Jesus. God could pull the plug on the world right now. He could bring the whole thing to a screeching halt, but he waits. And he waits because he is redeeming. 
He is redeeming people like you and I. God is working redemption in the background, not in the throne rooms or the white houses of the world where the powers of be barely notice and seldom care. The insignificant ones like you and I are receiving from him a gift so precious that it outshines the darkness around us. The gift of life with God that lasts forever is more precious than all of the world in its great power or great pleasure has to offer. And knowing the true God who reigns forever is worth more anything that the world can offer that we may choose to refuse in order to honor our God. The gift of life that God has to, to offer outlasts the sufferings of this life that, this, that the powerful inflict upon us. We may leave this world in a whimper. We may suffer with disease. We may be taken prematurely. Someone may take our lives from us. But in Jesus, we will rise to live forever with him. And the horrors that can sometimes be life in this world will be overshadowed by the joys of eternity with our God. So as we look at the bleak world that we live in today, which is not unlike the bleak world in which Esther's story plays itself out, we have hope, hope in God. We may seldom see rulers that bow their knees to Christ, and even those that do are going to be greatly flawed as we ourselves are greatly flawed. But we do not hope in this world alone. And God is not invisible. He reigns over those who think that they reign in this world. We hope in God. And that, and He, our God, has given us this little gift called communion in which we can celebrate that hope every time that we do it together. Let's pray. We worship you, God. We know that you see us. We know that you laugh at the foolishness of the proud in this world. We know that you reign over the universe. And we know that you redeem. And we are humbled to call ourselves your redeemed sons and daughters. Lord, redeem more and more and more. Cause the blind to see your glory. Peel back the pride of human hearts and cause men and women and boys and girls to know and to worship you, Lord Jesus. Pour out your spirit. Cause us to humble ourselves and seek the glory of the one who made us and live for his glory. Until that day in which time is rolled up and a new heavens and a new earth is wrought at your hand, help us to persevere in faithfulness, God. We love you so very much today.
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.